You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah. Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and you're listening to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria, the show that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. In fact, the reason the title in its full length is Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, is precisely because the theme of the show is to explore how Judaism and the Catholic Church are not two distinct religions, they're two phases of the same plan for the salvation of all of mankind, a preparation phase, which we know of as Judaism, to prepare for the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity as a man, that is, of course, Jesus, who is the founder of the church and the sal- salvation of all of mankind, but he's also the Jewish Messiah that they prayed for and waited for for 2,000 years. And so there's, a fulfill- there's the um, preparation phase, which is Judaism, and there is the reaping the harvest, the fruitful phase, the, the fulfillment phase, which is the Catholic Church and her sacraments. So it's all one story for the salvation of all of mankind. It's all one relationship with God that went through a fundamental transformation, not surprisingly, when God became man. Because if you stop to think about it, there is nothing bigger in the entire history of the world than God having become man and henceforth the divine nature having flowed into the human nature and giving us measly mortals the possibility to actually partake in the divine divine nature for all of eternity. Which is why we're all here, I hope. It's actually why we're all here in the sense of why we were all created. Um, I hope it's also why we're all here in the sense of listening, is that we want to up the odds, so to speak, of making it into heaven for all eternity. So that was a little unexpected um, introduction. But um, one of the great joys of uh, being a Catholic is that we have this this beautiful rhythm of the church year um, in the course of which we celebrate and and commemorate so many different aspects of salvation history and so many different aspects of the uh, life and work of Jesus. And needless to say, I don't have to tell anybody that we're in the Christmas season and we just celebrated the birth of our Savior. And uh, we're not out of the Christmas season. We're in, uh, you could say, phase two of the Christmas season, which is we're around Epiphany. Now, this gets a little bit confusing because the date of Epiphany depends on where you live to some extent. Uh, Historically, it was always uh, the 12th day of Christmas, uh, January 6th, 12 days after Christmas. You know, you know, all know the, the uh, Christmas carol, the 12 days of Christmas on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me and so forth. Uh, and the 12 days of Christmas culminated in the Feast of the Epiphany, which would therefore always be on January 6th, since Christmas is always on December 25th. But for practical reasons, in different places, uh, Christmas is celebrated now, sometimes uh, on the Sunday, the second Sunday after Christmas, um, and so forth. So depending on where you are, perhaps 
Epiphany was uh, yesterday, two days ago. It was this last Thursday. Or it may be tomorrow. Uh, Sunday is not Epiphany. Last Sunday, excuse me. Epiphany, uh, I, I, I dropped a week there. Uh, Epiphany may have been celebrated last Sunday. And this Sunday coming up tomorrow is the baptism of the Lord. Now, I'm getting confused for a good reason. I'm getting confused because in the old days, so to speak, Epiphany was one feast that celebrated three epiphanies, three manifestations of the divinity of Jesus. It was the same feast day, and it celebrated the Magi coming to the birth crib in Bethlehem. That's what we think of usually when we think of Epiphany, the arrival of the Magi. That's what the gospel reading is at church. Uh, But it was the same day that celebrated the arrival of the Magi. And then it also celebrated the uh, baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. And it also celebrated Jesus's first public miracle at the wedding feast at Cana, turning the water into wine. And it was one in the same feast that celebrated all three manifestations of the divinity of Jesus. Because if you stop to think about it, all three of them were manifestations of the divinity of Jesus. You had kings from halfway around the world, that's a little exaggeration, but from far, far away, coming to worship and adore and give gifts to the newborn baby, obviously, because they were reverencing him and worshiping him as God made man. And you had at the baptism in the Jordan, you had the voice from the heavens saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then at the wedding feast of Cana, you had his first public miracle. So that's why it's fitting that all three events are in fact epiphanies. They are all three manifestations of the divinity of Jesus. And they used to be celebrated on the same day in order to be able to focus separately on the different manifestations. They are now celebrated on three different days. I believe they're all Sundays. I'm not, um, and uh, the first one is, of course, the Magi. Then comes the baptism in the Jordan, and then comes the wedding feast at Cana. So, all an introduction. Now, before I get too carried away, this is a live call-in program. Uh, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, in case you wonder where that strange number came from. It's 866-333-MARY. And you're welcome to call in with questions or comments. Uh, my normal system is halfway through the show. I take a short musical break, and very often people find that a very propitious time to call in because then coming out of the break, I can just look at the call board and take the calls before I uh, continue with my with my discussion, with my monologue. So, uh, so what am I going to do today? First, I'm going to read a description of the Epiphany of Our Lord, uh, taken from a book that was written when uh, all three manifestations of Jesus's uh, divinity were celebrated on the Feast of the Epiphany. It's a very beautiful description. You'll see the inner unity between those three manifestations. 
It's from a book called The Liturgical Year by um, Dom Guéranger, a Benedictine abbot and monk of the first decades of the 20th century, I believe. And I uh, will start with that. And as time permits, I will uh, continue with Anne Catherine Emmerich, um, blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, uh, who was a uh, visionary nun of the late 19th century who had a series of visions of the life of Jesus, uh, which were then written down. And she described the event of the baptism as she saw it unfold moment to moment in her vision. Now, of course, that's not gospel, so to speak. Um, it's, uh, it, it may be accurate and it may not be accurate. It's certainly very plausible and very inspiring. And she is a blessed, she has been uh, beatified. So it speaks well for her um, authenticity, but it's no proof. Anyway, okay, Dom Guéranger to start. The Feast of the Epiphany is the continuation of the mystery of Christmas, but it appears on the calendar of the Church with its own special character. Its very name, which signifies manifestation, implies that it celebrates the apparition of God to his creatures. Got that? The word epiphany which means manifestation, reflects the fact that Epiphany celebrates the apparition of God, the manifestation of God to his creatures. Aren't we blessed, aren't we fortunate to have had God show himself to us? The Epiphany shares with the Feast of Christmas, Easter, Ascension, oops, excuse me, the Epiphany is indeed a great feast, and the joy caused us by the birth of our Jesus must be renewed on it. For as though it were a second Christmas day, it shows us our incarnate God in a new light. It leaves us all the sweetness of the dear babe of Bethlehem, who has appeared to us already in love, but to this it adds its own grand manifestation of the divinity of our Jesus. At Christmas, it was a few shepherds that were invited by the angels to go and recognize the Word made flesh, but now at the Epiphany the voice of God himself calls the whole world to adore this Jesus and hear him. In Epiphany, they were united in one and the same Epiphany, three manifestations of Jesus' glory, the mystery of the Magi coming from the east under the guidance of a star and adoring the infant of Bethlehem as the divine king, the mystery of the baptism of Christ, who, while standing in the waters of the Jordan, was proclaimed by the Eternal Father as Son of God, and thirdly, the mystery of the divine power of the same Jesus when he changed the water into wine at the marriage feast at Cana. But did these three mysteries really take place on this day? Is the 6th of January the real anniversary of these great events? We think it is enough to state that, and now he goes to a list of um, uh, church fathers, uh, very prominent theologians of the past centuries, we think it is enough to say that Baronius, Suarez, Theophilus, Reynaldus, Honorarius de Santa Maria, Cardinal Gaudi, Sandina, Benedict, Pope Benedict Fourteenth, and an almost endless list of other writers assert that the adoration of the Magi happened on this very day. 
that the baptism of our Lord also happened on the 6th of January is admitted by the severest historical critics. The present day of the miracle at the marriage feast of Cana is far from being as certain as the other two mysteries, although it well could have been on this day. So Dom Guerinje is making the distinction between the fact that there is good reason to believe that the Magi appeared 12 days after the birth and that the baptism in the Jordan was on an anniversary of the appearance of the Magi, but the wedding feast at Cana, there's really no uh, historical, well-founded, ancient tradition reason to uh, conclude that it was on the same day, although it's not impossible. That the mystery of the vocation of the Gentiles should be Oh, no, excuse me, again. I have to obviously skip a little bit because I'm only allowed an hour with you. Let us return to the triumph of our sweet Savior and King. His magnificence is manifested to us so brightly on this feast. Our Mother, the Church, is going to initiate us into the mysteries we are to celebrate. Let us imitate the faith and obedience of the Magi. Let us adore with the Holy Baptist, the Divine Lamb, over whom the heavens open. Let us take our place at the mystic feet of Cana, where our dear King is present, thrice manifested, thrice glorified. In the last two mysteries, let us not lose sight of the babe of Bethlehem, and in the babe of Bethlehem, let us cease not to recognize the great God in whom the Father was well pleased and the supreme ruler and creator of all things. So that's by way of a little, a little introduction um, to the uh, Feast of Epiphany, to the season of Epiphany. That's another, uh, this gets a little bit confusing because, because the church calendar has changed over the centuries and also because we have a Western church uh, liturgical year and we have an Eastern Orthodox liturgical year. And so the whole issue of whether the three manifestations of the divinity of Jesus are uh, the same feast or not gets a little bit cloudy, um, as I, I mentioned. Now, uh, in the in the Roman Church, until relatively recently, certainly until Vatican II, Epiphany was a season, and uh, it was a season. It had a number of Sundays, and and the first you had Epiphany Sunday. Oh, you know, not Sunday, as a matter of fact. You had Epiphany, which could fall on any day of the week, since it's 12 days after Christmas. And then the following Sunday was the first Sunday after Epiphany, and then the second Sunday after Epiphany, and so forth. Because until Vatican II, there was no such thing on the calendar as ordinary time. Every Sunday of the year was part of a special season. And after Christmas started the Epiphany season. So the octave of the Epiphany... The uh, first, uh, well, I'm really, I should not be going down this rabbit hole. In any case, the um, octave of Epiphany, the eighth day after Epiphany, was the day that once upon a time, in a unique way, celebrated the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. So I will go to Dom Guerinje's description of the octave day of Epiphany, which was the feast day, it wasn't a Sunday, necessarily, 
because Epiphany is any day of the week. Obviously, the eighth day afterwards is any day of the week. But it was a day dedicated to celebrating the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. So it's appropriate for us to meditate on today, given that tomorrow, uh, for most of us, is uh, the feast of the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. Okay. Okay. So, going back to Dom Guéranger, let me just make a little uh, quick adjustment here. If I may. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, be back here in a second, as soon as, there we go. Okay. Um, the Octave of the Epiphany. The thoughts of the Church today are fixed on the baptism of our Lord in the Jordan, which is the second of the three mysteries of the Epiphany. The Emmanuel manifested himself to the Magi, but um, after having shown himself to the shepherds. But this manifestation was made within the narrow space of a stable at Bethlehem, and the world knew nothing of it. In the mystery of the Jordan, Christ manifested himself with greater publicity. His coming is proclaimed by the precursor. The crowd that is flocking to the river for baptism is witness of what happens. Jesus makes this the beginning of his public life. But who could worthily explain the glorious circumstances of this second epiphany? It resembles the first in this, that it is for the benefit and salvation of the human race. The star has led the Magi to Christ, they had long waited for his coming. They had hoped for it. Now they believe. Faith in the Messiah having come into the world is beginning to take root among the Gentiles. But faith is not sufficient for salvation. The stain of sin must be washed away by water. Quote, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Close quote. That's from the Gospel according to Mark. The time has come then for a new manifestation of the Son of God whereby there shall be inaugurated the great remedy, which is to give to faith the power of producing life eternal. Now the decrees of divine wisdom had chosen water as the instrument of this sublime regeneration of the human race. Hence, in the beginning of the world, we find the Spirit of God moving over the waters, that's from Genesis, in order that they might even then conceive a principle of sanctifying power. But being, before being called to fulfill the designs of mercy, excuse me, the designs of God's mercy, this element of water had to be used by the divine justice for the chastisement of a sinful world. With the exception of one family, the whole human race perished by the terrible judgment of God in the waters of the deluge of the flood. A fresh indication of the future supernatural power of this chosen element was given by the dove, which Noah sent forth from the ark. It returned to him, bearing in its beak an olive branch, the symbol that peace was given to the earth by its having been buried in water. But this was only the announcement of the mystery, its accomplishment, was not to be for long ages to come. Wow. Okay. This he gets very heavy, very heavy, very deep, very quickly, um, he, and he's tracing the role of water 
throughout salvation history, how God used water sacramentally, you could say. And uh, the first uh, the first use at the beginning of the world at the beginning of the world was the spirit of God moving over the waters. That's in the creation story, and thereby by somehow um, conceiving a power of sanctifying power um, in the water. And the church expresses that in the liturgy for Holy Saturday, in fact. Um, but then water was going to be used as a sign of God's mercy in baptism, right? Forgiveness of sins. But before it was used as a sign of God's mercy, it was first going to be used as a sign of God's justice. And that took place, of course, in the flood, which destroyed all of mankind with the exception of the family of Noah. That was an expression of God's justice, uh, punishing sinful mankind. But even in, the, in that situation, even in the flood, the dove returned with a sprig of olive branch in its beak to show that the waters had receded. And that was a prefigurement of the salvific value of water in the future, which is, of course, where we've gotten to now in the baptism. Meanwhile, God spoke to his people by many events which were figurative of the future mystery of baptism. Thus, for example, it was by passing through the waters of the Red Sea that they entered into the Promised Land, and during the miraculous passage, a pillar of a cloud was seen covering both the Israelites and the waters to which they owed their deliverance. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. The entire story of the exodus of the Jews from Egypt was a prefigurement of our salvation through Christianity. The Jews in Egypt were slaves of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was a picture of Satan. The Jews being slaves of Pharaoh was a picture of all of mankind being enslaved to the power of Satan. The Jews were freed from the power of Pharaoh. How? By passing through the waters of the Red Sea which is a picture of humanity being freed from the power of Satan by passing through the waters of baptism. The Jews wandered through the desert for 40 years on the way to the promised land. That was a picture of the Christian wandering through the desert of this life, so to speak, for 40, 50, 80, 100 years on the way to the true promised land, the heavenly Jerusalem. And if we could have a trumpet blare here, What sustained them miraculously, the Jews miraculously in the desert for 40 years uh, on their way to the promised land? The miraculous bread from heaven, the manna in the wilderness, which of course was a picture of the Eucharist, our supernatural bread from heaven, which sustains us in passing through the desert of this life on the way to the heavenly Jerusalem. And should anyone wish to doubt the, um, the authenticity of that metaphor, I recommend they look at John 6, where Jesus himself says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died nonetheless. I tell you, I am the true bread from heaven. Whoever eats of me shall have life everlasting. This is, inc- anyway, I, I hope I'm able to convey a little bit of the meaningfulness and the excitement of uh, of seeing the continuity between uh, Judaism and um, and the Catholic faith because it really is one story in, in two acts, so to speak. Back to Dom Geringer. 
oh, I'm, you know, <laughs> I could go on for three hours. I have an hour. We'll see how long, how far we get. Um, but in order that water should have the power to purify man from his sins, it was necessary that it should be brought in contact with the sacred body of the incarnate God. The Eternal Father had sent his Son into the world, not only that he might be its lawgiver and redeemer and the victim of its salvation, but that he might also be the sanctifier of water, and it was in this sacred element that he would divinely bear testimony to his being his Son and manifest him to the world a second time. Okay, so water has this incredible divinely given sacramental power, of uh, being used in baptism for the remission of our sins. But for water to get this incredible sacramental power, it had first to be put into physical contact with the very body of the incarnate God, which was Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan. That that was a, a, a step in the process of water being given this salvific value. And it was in the course of water being given in this this salvific value by it coming in contact with God himself that the Father manifested the divinity of Jesus to the world in those words that he spoke from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Continuing with Dom Gerenje. Jesus, therefore, being now 30 years of age, comes to the Jordan a river already celebrated for the prophetic miracles which had been wrought in its waters. The Jewish people, roused by the preaching of John the Baptist, were flocking there in order to receive a baptism which could indeed excite a sorrow for sin, but could not affect its forgiveness. Our divine king approaches the river, not, of course, to receive sanctification, for he himself is the author of all justice, but to impart to water the power of bringing forth, as the church expresses the mystery, a new and heavenly progeny. He goes down to the stream, not like Joshua, to walk dryshod through the bed, but to let its waters encompass him and receive from him, both for itself and for the waters of the whole earth, the sanctifying power which they would retain forever. This is the sanctifying power which allows the waters poured over us at our baptism to remit sin. I know most of you, it only remitted original sin because you were infants, but I had the great privilege of only being baptized in my 30s, so I had the waters of baptism remit a whole truckload of actual sin in addition to original sin. As a matter of fact, there was an early abuse in the church in the first centuries, that um, Christians, all Christians were Catholics then, essentially. So whether I say Christian or Catholic is is kind of um, meaningless. But anyway, there was an abuse where Christians would wait until their deathbed to be baptized so they could be sure of all of their sins being washed away. And the church had to actually rule officially that this was a no-no and you weren't allowed to do that. I didn't know better. I was Jewish, so I I could take advantage of baptism to wipe away my sins of my 20s and and teens. And and probably probably most of us had our lion's share of our sins in those years. Anyway, back to Dom Geringe. 
the saintly Baptist places his trembling hand upon the sacred head of the Redeemer and bends it beneath the water. The Son of Justice vivifies this his creature. He imparts to it the glow of life-giving fruitfulness, and water thus becomes the prolific source of supernatural life, as it is for us through baptism. Now, I cannot believe it, but I've already used up half of the hour. So, as I said, we usually have a short a short musical break halfway through. And uh, one of the reasons for the musical break is to uh, make an opportunity for people to call in if they wish to call in with comments or questions. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Again, 866-333-6279 or the last four digits being the same as M-A-R-Y. So we'll go to that musical break. And if there are any callers, I'll immediately turn to the call board and uh, take the calls. And if there aren't, I shall continue with uh, Dom Garanger and my commentary. So with that, let's cue this up. It is a, uh, it's a very Christmassy song. It's Raraticelli, Drop Down, Heavenly Dew from Above refers to Jesus, but it's appropriate also for for the uh, baptism in the Jordan. And it's sung by a lovely small religious community called Harpidei um, that are originally out of uh, Germany. Uh, but they all have a, a house in Jerusalem, too, which is where I know them from. So let's go to Raraticelli. I'll be back in three or four minutes. Uh, if there are any calls, I'll take them. Otherwise, I will simply continue. Christ 
Christus est natus, ex Maria Virgine Gaudete. Gaudete, 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 Gaudete. Ezekielis portatus aper transitur, Gaudetus est portatus aus eubetitur, Gaudete, Gaudete, Christus est natus, Ex Maria Virgine Gaudete, 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 Christus est natus, Ex Maria Virgine Gaudete. Gaudete, Gaudete, Christus est natus, ex Maria Virgine Gaudete. Gaudete, Gaudete, Christus est natus, ex Maria Virgine Gaudete. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that. I know it's not exactly the most appropriate music, but we are in Christmas season, and it's um, certainly sursum corda music, uh, lift up your heart to God music, rejoicing music. Um, okay, well, um, I, uh, I, I see as far as I can tell, there are no, no callers, so I will go back to uh, just speaking. But if you wish to call, again, the number is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY. Now we were just at the Jordan River when Jesus was baptized. But in this, the commencement of a new creation, we look for the intervention of the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. All three are there. The heavens open. The dove descends, not as a mere symbol, prophetic of some future grace, but as the sign of the actual presence of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Love, who gives peace to men and changes their hearts. The dove hovers, hovers above the head of Jesus, overshadowing at one and the time, same time the humanity of the Incarnate Word and the water which bathed his sacred body. Um... I'm going to have to read read the uh, passage uh, at some point. Um, the manifestation is not yet complete. The Father's voice is still to be heard speaking over the water and moving by its power the entire element throughout the earth. Then was fulfilled the prophecy of David. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of majesty hath sundered, thundered. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars that is, the pride of devils. The voice of the Lord divides the flame of fire, that is, the anger of God. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert and makes the flood to swell, that is, announces a new flood, the flood of divine mercy. And what says this voice of the Father? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Thus was the holiness of Emmanuel manifested by the presence of the dove and by the voice of the Father, as his kingly character had been previously manifested by the mute testimony of the star. The mystery is accomplished, the waters are invested with a spiritual purifying power, 
And Jesus comes from the Jordan and ascends the bank, raising up with himself the world, regenerated and sanctified, with all its crimes and defilements drowned in the stream. Such is the interpretation and language of the Holy Fathers of the Church regarding this great event of our Lord's life. Uh, In another moment, I'm going to go to the Gospel passage and read it. But before I do, I simply want to point out the, the beauty of this image, which is Jesus descends into the waters, he's baptized. When he rises up from the waters, not only does he is he rising himself up, but with him he's raising up the world, regenerated and sanctified, with all its crimes and defilements drowned in the stream. Because all of the sin of mankind is now potentially drowned in the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism being affected by Jesus having descended into the waters of baptism. Um, uh, let me read the uh, let me read the path. Oh, we have a caller. Okay, well, uh, it's a good time to uh, interrupt myself. So, um, okay, caller, would you like to say your name, if you wish, and where you're from? Hello? Hmm. I don't know if we lost the caller. Uh, Perhaps the student... Oh, oh, there you are. Okay, good. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not hearing you. Well, I'm hearing you. You're not hearing me. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Hello, this is uh, Stephanie calling from California. I'm really enjoying the show. Um, And um, this is possibly maybe a little tangential, but um, my question is this. I have sadly heard of people leaving, you know, baptized Catholics leaving the church they go to some other Protestant church and they have themselves rebaptized. But isn't it true that once you're baptized as a Catholic, that leaves in a, your soul is indelibly marked um, as a Catholic? Nothing can remove that. Is that correct? That is my understanding. It's not exactly my field, dogmatic theology, but that's my understanding. The expression that I've heard is once once you're a Catholic, you're always a Catholic. You may be a fallen away Catholic, but you're still a Catholic, just a fallen away Catholic. That's what I've heard, yeah. Um, so it's really, they really technically can't say, oh, I'm, I'm no longer a Catholic. They can say whatever they want. People say things all the time. <laughs> I mean, um, they, and they probably, I mean, that's how they feel. But um, uh, I think that their their soul, when they get to heaven or hell or wherever they end up, will retain the mark of them being a Catholic. Got it. All right. I wouldn't suggest okay. telling them that necessarily, depending on what your relationship is. But uh, I'm I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure that that's actually the 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 teaching of Catholic theology. Just like a priest, by the way, once. Once a um, priest is ordained a priest, even when he's laicized, the mark of the priesthood is on him for all eternity. And, and the, the story is, supposedly, priests in hell 
are given a particularly hard time by the demons because, you know, laicized or not, it shows that they were priests. So, on that cheerful note, I, I'll go back to the baptism. All right. Thank you for calling. Thank you, Thank you very much, Roy. Appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. So, um, I will... Uh, uh, I will simply read read the passage from uh, the Gospel according to John. Um, at that, this is from the first chapter. At that time, John saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God! Behold, him who takes away the sins of the world! This is he of whom I said, After me there comes a man who is preferred before me, because he was before me." And I knew him not, but that he may be made manifest in Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John gave testimony, saying, I saw the Spirit coming down as a dove from heaven, and he remained upon him. And I knew him not, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, he it is, that is baptized with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and I gave testimony that this is the Son of Man. Okay, well, I have a few minutes left. I have about 10 minutes left. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I am going to go to um, the third manifestation of Jesus' divinity that is associated with, with Epiphany which is the wedding feast of Cana. And um, I think I'm going to talk about it in a way that my guess is none of you have ever heard before. Um, uh, anyway, so I'm, that's just a little bit of a teaser, but uh, the only way to do that is to go into it. Um, but when I do, I think you'll see what I'm talking about because there's something about the wedding feast at Cana which is a also it's a, there are a lot of lessons wrapped up in all of these events in Jesus's life and in all of his parables. There are layers and layers and layers of lessons being taught, and um, it doesn't mean that any one of them is the reason for the parable or the reason for the incident. It's a like a bottomless gold mine that you just keep mining more treasure from. So that's the light in which I want to uh, discuss. The wedding feast of Cana. But let me uh, first read the passage. It's from John 2. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so what's going on here um, in, in the one layer of meaning that I would like to talk about right now, which is I started the show talking about how the Catholic Church is the transformation of Judaism. It's actually the fulfillment of Judaism. Now, we all know how a wedding feast, a marriage feast, is a picture of the soul's union with God after death. It's all over. It's all over in the Old Testament. It's all over in the New Testament. The um, It's all over in Jesus' parables. The All the parables about a wedding feast and the the Lord of the feast and the people who are invited and the people who aren't invited. The wedding feast is the fundamental image of the soul's union with God after death. This is not a coincidence. Nothing is, an, is a coincidence in the life of Jesus. Wine, what's wine a, a, a continually a picture of in, in the Gospels and in the Scriptures? Wine is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Wine is a picture of the spiritual force, of, of spiritual... Uh, fruitfulness, uh, spiritual energy is not a very good word, but you know it's 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 the presence of the the spiritual reality. So what do we have here? We have a Jewish marriage feast, needless to say, and it has run out of wine. Okay, you could easily see this as being that the animating spirit of Judaism, the union between the soul and God that in Judaism has dried up. And of course, I sh- you see this to some extent in the Gospels, when you see the behavior of the Pharisees and the high priests and so forth, how they're completely missing the boat. They have no genuine spirituality. Jesus is continually berating them for that. They have the external form, but they have lost the interior meaning, and they have lost the actual connection with God, which was intended by it. And what was going to provide their connection with God was the Jewish ritual laws. That's why God gave them the ritual laws. But by now, those ritual laws just existed as empty show. They lost their spirit. Where does the new wine come from? It comes from water. Where is the water coming from? It comes from jugs used for Jewish ritual washing. So what we have here is a picture that the Jewish ceremonial law that the Jews were so wrapped up in had lost its inner spirit and had turned into water from you know, the, the, the wine, the true spirit that was supposed to be in it. Jesus comes and he transforms Judaism that, that has turned into water, not only back into wine, giving it the real spirit, but wine that blows away the original wine. That is uh, the relationship with God in the Catholic Church, in Christianity, that absolutely blows away the relationship with God from Judaism. And of course, all this takes place at, at a wedding feast, which is, which is a picture of the union of the soul with God. This is how he chose to manifest his glory for the first time. This, I'll read verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this was his manifestation of his divinity. This was his manifestation of his divine mission. And the entire circumstance in which he manifested it was a picture 
of the transform uh, first the trans the the genuineness of Judaism, the um, drying up of Judaism into an empty form symbolized by the the vessels for the purification and only water in them, and then the revivification, the rebringing to life of the interior content of Judaism in a far, 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 far greater way in the new wine, in the better wine. Pretty cool, huh? I think so. Um, anyway, so that's actually... Uh, um, Okay, I, I did want to get there because this is probably my only chance to do that. Um, um, I, I'm going to just close the show now with um, a prayer, with some prayers from actually uh, back to Dom Garanjay. They're essentially prayers just to lift our hearts again, so to speak, to um, uh, you know, to. Uh, God, let me see. No, no more callers. Okay. O Lamb of God, thou didst enter into the stream. We're back at the baptism in the Jordan. O Lamb of God, thou didst enter into the stream to purify it. The dove came down from heaven, for thy sweet meekness attracted the spirit of love. And having sanctified the waters, the mystery of thy baptism was over. But what tongue can express the prodigy of mercy affected by it? Men have gone down after thee, into the stream made sacred by contact with thee. They return regenerated. They were wolves, and baptism has transformed them into lambs. We were defiled by sin, and were unworthy to stand near thee, the spotless lamb. But the waters of the holy font have been poured upon us, and we are made as the sheep of the canticle, which... Come up from the washing fruitful, and none is barren among them. This, these are scripture quotes. Or as doves upon the brooks of water, white and spotless, as though they had been washed with milk, sitting near the plentiful streams. Preserve us, O Jesus, in this white robe which thou hast put upon us. If, alas, we have tarnished its purity, cleanse us by that second baptism, the baptism of penance. Permit us too, dear Lord, to intercede for those countries to whom thy gospel has not yet been preached. Let this river of peace, the waters of baptism, flow out upon them and flood the whole earth. We beseech thee by the glory of thy manifestation at thy baptism, forget the crimes of men which have hitherto caused the gospel to be kept from those unhappy countries. Thy heavenly Father bids every creature hear thee. Speak, dear Jesus, to every creature. Amen. And I will just point out this beautiful two sentences. Preserve us, O Jesus, in this white robe which thou hast put upon us. We came out of the waters of baptism in pure white robe, sinless. If, alas, we have tarnished its purity, cleanse us by that second baptism, the baptism of penance. So let me use this opportunity to be an exhortation that what better time would there be to go to confession than the baptism of the Lord and around the baptism of the Lord and ask for the virginal the virginal purity of our baptism be restored by the absolution that the priest gives us in confession. So with that, you've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Shoman. 
And it's been a great pleasure being with you this hour. Uh, all good things come to an end until we get to heaven, at which point all good things never come to an end, uh, which is really something to look forward to. But now it comes to an end, and um, I'll be back next week, same time, same place. I hope you join me then. And I'll go out with that beautiful drop-down dew from heaven above that uh, we were listening to earlier. Christus est natus, ex Maria.